Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another episode of Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. And there's Javina Graham over here by my Hello side. There. And myself, Jeremy Ambrose, and across the table, Bishop Julian Porteous. Now, Bishop, we have a very, I guess, practical question. Mm. And the question would be, what is the question that you are most asked as a bishop? You ah. know, when you encounter people on the street or... You know, your next door neighbors or catching a train somewhere or, you know, what, what question do you normally get asked in being in conversation? What is the most frequently asked question uh, of a bishop? Eh? Exactly. Yes, it's, it's, that is a good question because um, I, I noticed that while general conversations uh, that I have with people in all sorts of different situations can cover all manner of things, of course, but inevitably there seems to be one issue that always comes up and always and I'm always asked these questions almost like the person uh, is asking for the very first time and, and it's a, a new question that's never really been addressed but it's been something that's been around for some time it's a very it, the questions are, are, can take different shapes but really the questions revolve around the issue of the priesthood and, and particularly question of the decline and the number of priests at the present moment in the church. Okay, so um, what do they ask you about this decline? Well, well, firstly, people are very aware that there is a decline in the number of priests. And so, for instance, uh, people will maybe be aware of it in their own parish that uh, maybe there's, uh, they're, they're, they're realising that their, their own parish priest has got very old. Uh, they don't see many young priests around. Maybe they've been in a parish where they've been talking about the need to amalgamate with a next-door parish or something like that. Uh, so there are very real issues on the ground for Catholics that give uh, clear uh, evidence that there is a decline in the number of priests uh, available for, for ministry in the church. And this is certainly true. Um, it's, it's probably worthwhile just looking at the decline um, and contextualising it a little Firstly, we would say that in the in the period after the Second World War, there was a quite a, a time of uh, proliferation of vocations, and there were large numbers of uh, of priests and, and and religious as well. And uh, it seemed that in, in the nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties that the church was in a very good place with regard to vocations, and indeed it was. There were many many priests and religious and, and they had large numbers of people wanting to join the religious orders and so on. The decline seemed to have taken, seemed to have happened, say I could speak particularly for Australia, really in the latter part of the 1960s. Now I, I think there were some factors um, connected with this and the 1960s were a time of quite extraordinary social change. Um, it was a time when there was, they talked about the sexual revolution uh, occurring. It was a time when there was a great deal of student unrest, really culminating in 1967, 
when there were student riots in, in, in Paris and, and in the United States. And there was a great challenge of authority. There was a, a, a desire for, for finding new and fresh ways of, of, uh, of living. There was a great call for peace and, and, and so on. It was also the, the time in, in America and also in Australia of strong opposition to the Vietnam War. And so the anti-war movements were very strong. Of course, music, popular music, reflected this with many protest songs and so forth. So this was a destabilizing time for for youth, and I think we have to keep that in mind. That was one of the things that was happening. It was also when drugs started to be promoted. You know, various um, key people would be talking about drugs, um, particularly those in uh, the music industry and, and so on. And drugs became popular. So there are a whole lot of quite dramatic social changes occurring in the society. It was also the time when the Second Vatican Council was beginning to be implemented in the church. In a way, it was difficult because with all this change and perhaps with attitudes, uh, opposition to authority and questioning of authority and so forth, as the church started to implement it, it got caught up and if like swept along with these social changes, which meant that that a lot of the uh, new approaches or, or, or teachings of, this, of the Second Vatican Council also became caught up in this uh, social maelstrom, which was occurring at the same time. And so there was a lot of questioning of the church, questioning the church's position on things. There was, there was a tendency to, to want to push change forward a lot further than the Vatican Council ever anticipated. There were a lot of moves to want to bring the church more in line with the with the society and so on. All of these factors meant that there was a great deal of turbulence in the society. And I think all these sort of things had their impact on vocations because people started to wonder about their faith, wonder about the church, wonder about the whole value of, of religious life, of, of, of the priesthood and, and so on. Um, so that really then, um, I, I think, was a very powerful, had a very powerful impact on vocations in the Western Church um, for, um, for, the, for the period that followed into the 70s and one can say in the 80s. And uh, many of these um, questionings of faith also led to, to uh, declines in, in, say, mass attendance among young people and so on, we were all familiar with. Um, so there are many forces at work that just happened to come together that I think militated against um, not only vocations, but also the whole question of Catholic faith. Um, and it would, it's been a while for that to to work itself through and for the church, if you like, to recover from the power and influence of these factors and begin to regather strength and vitality. Now, that's happened. We particularly would recognise the extraordinary contribution of Blessed John Paul II in this regard. He really helped to, to redirect the church and, and provided a leadership that strengthened the church through a very turbulent and difficult time. And slowly we start to see a resurgence in faith and re, a, a new discovery of, um, of what Catholicism really had to offer, a new generation, really the Pope John Paul II generation of young people coming out of World Youth Days and so on, who were uh, growing in great confidence in their Catholic identity and, and, and looked to the Pope, 
look to the leadership of the church to give them guidance and, and inspiration for the way they could live. And then out of that, we started to see a resurgence in vocations beginning to emerge. In Australia, I'd say that by the turn of the century, by the year 2000, things had probably reached their, their lowest point. And from there on in, we start to see um, changes coming into the numbers of, of vocations. And really, we could say since around uh, the early part of the, the new millennium, numbers in um, particularly diocesan priesthood have begun to increase. Now, they haven't increased to the extent to which they can replace um, the numbers of priests who are retiring or, 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 uh, or dying, but there are now uh, numbers of young men coming forward, which at least will provide us with a, a good number of priests for the future. And, and each year we're seeing slowly an increase in the number of priests, a number of seminarians in uh, Australia. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it's well over 200 men are currently studying for the priesthood in Australia. Wow. So there is a slow upsurge. Um, Many people don't realise that. Many people just look at the decline and know that a number of dioceses have had to implement structures to deal with the decline. I think in the short term we will continue to have uh, a decline number of priests, but at the same time uh, I don't think it's terminal uh, decline. I think that's what we have to understand, that uh, um, because of changes within the church and also by the grace of God, we're starting to see uh, improvements. And I suppose a message that we would like to give is to say we should be optimistic and not pessimistic about the future of the, the church with regard to the availability of priests. Okay, great. So that was FAQ number one answered. <laughs> Bishop, might I ask what FAQ number two is? Well, there's another question that, of course, always comes up, always comes up. Um, when people talk about the decline number of priests, they say, well, why doesn't the church allow married priests? Ah, uh, yes. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure it's been something that has often been discussed. And people think, surely that's the most logical, reasonable Response: We've got lack of priests. Now, we know that there are a lot of people, a lot of men who would like to become priests, but they really want to get married as well. So why can't we, um, why can't we just, why can't the church change its uh, rules in relation to celibate clergy? And I suppose the first question we need to ask is, how has uh, celibacy become associated with the priesthood in the Latin rite? Um, because many people say, well, look, the apostles weren't all celibate. St. Peter had a mother-in-law, so he must have been married. Yeah. And, and, and certainly in the early church, numbers of uh, early bishops were, uh, were married men. And, and so people say, well, that's how it was in the beginning. Why can't we go back to that practice today? And that seems reasonable and logical and so on. We have to notice a few things. I think the first thing we have to notice is that while that was in fact the case and for, for the first couple of centuries there were many uh, married bishops and, and priests in the church, there was also in the church a, a very strong movement towards celibacy. And, and Jesus himself spoke about the fact that some would choose celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. 
And St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, spoke, speaks about it in good deeds. He says, look, I'm, I'm celibate, but I, I don't want to impose it on you. But if you, if you are, if you do embrace the celibate life, you'll be able to devote yourself more wholeheartedly, more single-mindedly to the work of the Lord. That was an argument that he put forward to say that uh, those who want to serve the cause of Christ, there's a great merit in being celibate. He didn't impose it but he, he recommended it. What we see is in the early church, there was a very strong movement of recognition of the value of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of um, single-minded devotion to the works of the Lord. And so that emerged particularly in monasticism in the 3rd and 4th centuries. We see thousands of monks and nuns embracing celibacy, to, to pursue the spiritual life more fully as monks and nuns. And so the church saw that, that this, this, this movement had particular relevance and value for the priesthood. They saw that, yes, um, for those who are being called to serve at the altar, there is great merit in it. And so initially it was encouraged to say this was a good thing um, because you can then give your whole self without the responsibilities and commitments of married life um, to the service of, of God through the, through the priesthood. Over time, it became seen as more and more of a value, and so eventually it was legislated to say this is what will in fact be uh, what is required of, of priests. So that happened gradually over time in different places and at, at different times. But certainly you could say by the, uh, by the early Middle Ages it was more or less an accepted practice in the church and has continued down to the present day. It's always been something that is within the law of the church and it's never been understood to be of divine law. So it wasn't something that the Lord himself uh, required. It was something the church made a decision about. And so in that sense, it is possible for the church to make uh, changes. And so that's why, for instance, we have the case now of, um, say, some Anglicans who, um, who because particularly what Pope Benedict has done, have set up this new prelature for, um, for Anglicans as a way in which Anglicans can become part of the church but also preserve a lot of their own practices and traditions. So it's possible then for an Anglican priest, for instance, who's already married, to firstly become uh, a member of this new Anglican prelature, and and then they can ap approach the church about uh, being ordained as a priest, and the church will be uh, open to that possibility. So the church realizes that 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 it's not to say that there is no possibility of anybody who's married becoming a priest, and certainly we have traditions associated with some of the Eastern churches. Uh, Melkites and the Maronites and, and other uh, Eastern churches who allow priests to be married, but do not, but every bishop has to be celibate. So we have that in the case of, say, the Maronite church. Um, so the church, so those Eastern rites are fully part of the church, and we don't see any issue with that. That that's their tradition, that's their background, so they can they can be be married. However, when it comes to the Latin rite, I, th I think what is clear is is that. The tradition now has become very deeply embedded in the uh, the nature of priestly ministry in the Latin Rite in the Church. Currently, there are over four hundred thousand priests who are in the Catholic Church in the, in the Latin Rite um, who are celibate. 
Um, so I said it is possible to change. I don't think the church will change. I think the tradition, and I think the Catholic people, even though they might say this will give us more priests, I think deep down inside Catholic people really appreciate the fact that the priest, and you call him father because he's a spiritual father. He's not a, a, a natural father of a family. He's given himself to be a spiritual father. And I think many Catholics have a deep love and appreciation for the priesthood because they say this man has given everything to serve uh, us, to serve the church, to serve Christ as a priest. I think it has great value and I would not expect the church to change on it and certainly we shouldn't just change to meet immediate practical needs. There are deeper values to be considered in any change in this area. Bishop, can I take a guess at what question number three would be? <laughs> Flowing on from this, surely people must ask you about women priests. It always it comes up. Well, not always, but I have to say every woman who raises a question of the priesthood with me will raise a question of oh, okay. women priests. because, And I understand in, in the current culture and in the, uh, the ways that... Uh, the whole question of the role and place of women in, in the culture is has been um, been very much a subject of uh, of advances. If one could say that developments in the in the society, women are are open uh, now to all sorts of positions. Uh, you even see them now working in road gangs on <laughs> on the side of the road. You know, doing some uh, and and of course we have. Uh, female prime ministers, f female governors general, females uh, governors of states, and uh, and we see women exercising leadership in in industry and and so on. So we see um, so many uh, positions in the society now open to women, and and many of them quite a, quite appropriately so. Um, and so people see that the the church seems to be dragging uh, the chain a lot here, and seems to be out of touch with the society not moving as every other, seems every other agency within the society is accepting the role of women, women in the military and, and so on. So why not the priesthood? It just seems, and one can understand the simple logic uh, connected with that question and why it invariably comes up because it just seems the church is at odds with the rest of the society. You yeah. know? And, and so people say, well, why? You know, it doesn't make sense. Everything else is, uh, and other religions have accepted women ministers and they're even talking about women bishops and all that sort of thing. Why is a Catholic church so different? Why has the Catholic church realised that this is what's happening in society and so it should happen in the church? Now, the first thing is that the church has been absolutely clear about John Paul came out definitively on this question because it was such a debated issue and so many people were wondering, will the church change, should the church change, and so forth. So the, but John Paul's come out very clearly and definitively say it's not within the authority of the church to make a change in this area because we believe it is of divine law and not just human law. So it's not just something that the church has decided upon, but it is of the mind of God, it is the mind of Christ, that priests be uh, only... Be, be men. Now, again, people immediately say, well, well, how did the church reach that 
decision is that the, that the, that decision defensible, um, and uh, and and so uh, I, the way I would immediately approach it is by saying. <clears throat> Jesus had many disciples, men and women, and had some disciples who were very closely involved with him who were women. St. Luke talks about this group of women who came around and helped the disciples and cared for them and, and so on. And there were particular women, Mary Magdalene is often mentioned, who were very devoted to the Lord, um, who themselves had gone through great conversions as a result of his ministry, very closely associated with him. No doubt some of those women were extremely capable, competent uh, women, very fine women. Um, and yet there was one decisive moment. It's a very important moment in the Gospels. And we're told by St. Luke that Jesus spent all night in prayer. And when he came down from the mountain, he looked out on his disciples and named 12 apostles. Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, and so on, the 12 apostles. The 12 matches the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus chose men in that case, in that particular instance. I think that was very deliberate. He could have chose women. In many other cases, we see the fact that, that Jesus would challenge some of the social mores of the day. You know, he, he was accused of, um, for instance, he said to a man that he just raised said, pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. Now, you're not allowed to pick up anything on the Sabbath. So uh, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but he actually asked the man to do something to, which was contrary to the law of the Sabbath, which was something very sacred to the Jewish people. He was sitting by the well talking to a Samaritan woman. Jews do not speak to Samaritans, let alone a, ma a Jew, a male Jew speaking to a Samaritan woman. It's just not on. So in many, many instances, uh, Jesus did not feel constricted by, confined by the, um, the, the, the social customs, practices of the day. So it seems to me that if, if, if in his mind he wanted there to be men and women to, to, um, to be priests, and in this case to be bishops, if you like, the apostles are the forerunners of the, of the bishops, he would have done so. He didn't. Uh, I believe this is, this is significant. And uh, from, from the very beginnings of the church, there was always this clear understanding that, that, that the, uh, the role of bishop, the role of priest, is something only open um, to men. The other side of it, I think, very clearly is that you know, a priest acts in the name of Christ. The priest says, I baptize, I absolve, I anoint. It's not the priest himself. He's, he's speaking of like in the name of Christ. It's Christ who uh, carries out these actions. And now the fact that Christ was a man, I think, is, is significant here as well. And the, the, the priest acts, we often say, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Uh, I think that's another consideration. This is something which is very difficult <laughs> For many to accept, and I often find when I put forward these arguments that people listen, maybe respectfully, because I'm a bishop, but <laughs> but go away not 100% convinced. Uh, and I think it is a bit countercultural at the present moment. 
I believe it's right. I believe in time people will see that this is not only um, the, the church has done the right thing in preserving the priesthood as something only open to, to men, and I think it will be in the longer term in the best interests of the church um, for the priesthood uh, to be reserved to men. I agree with you, Bishop. I think um, it's very countercultural, and in the times like these, um, we speak about rights and and equality. People think that that this is about denying people's rights, but really the priesthood is about service, isn't it, rather than entitlement. So it's been very good listening to these. It's interesting that these are your frequently asked questions, and yeah, it's good to know. Hopefully, we can ask you a bit more about what you're asked frequently in the future. Thank you, Bishop. We come to that uh, part in our um, program when, when we just look at uh, aspects of Catholic culture. Uh, what I'd like to um, speak about is something I'm sure there's a particular hymn that I'm sure you've heard many, many times and love very much. And I think it's one of the most uh, most loved of of, uh, of Catholic hymns, Panis Angelicus. Yes, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? Bread of Angels. Uh do you know the author of it? I do know that it was Thomas Aquinas, I believe. That's Thomas correct. That's St. Thomas Aquinas. It's, it's rather interesting. Um, firstly, the reason Thomas Aquinas wrote this and a number of other hymns was because he was actually specifically asked by the Pope of the day to, to write these hymns because the Pope had just uh, introduced the Feast of Corpus Christi into the the, the life of the church, and, and had that as the liturgical feast. And because there was also to be a divine office um, associated with the feast, the divine office required some Eucharistic hymns. And so the Pope turned to the greatest theologian of the day to say, could you write some hymns for the divine office that can be then used within the liturgy of the church? And so... St. Thomas Aquinas um, uh, did that. And, and so there's a number of hymns, in fact, that uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote in honour of the, uh, the Blessed Eucharist. But the one that uh, I think is most popular is, is this Panis Angelicus. Actually, he didn't write Panis Angelicus. He, he wrote a longer hymn called Sacris Solemnis. Um, and the last two verses of that longer hymn were the words of Panis Angelicus. And so it, it became, um, those words were separated from the longer hymn uh, composed by, uh, by St. Thomas Aquinas. And probably the most popular version that we, we sing and we love to, to, to listen to, uh, particularly when it's sung in harmony, was, um, was, a, was a version that was uh, composed, the music was composed by a man called Caesar Frank in 1872, and his version with um, with multiple um, voices and and, and a, a particular piece, um, a particular music accompaniment, uh, became the hymn that we know and love so much. So the original um, hymn was composed by Thomas Aquinas back in the 13th century. But uh, the version we know and we sing and we love so much comes from the 19th century. Beautiful. So perhaps Jeremy might like to give us a rendition now. Uh, okay. Get ready, folks. And um, 
this is where the editor cuts out the song and inserts a conclusion by Jovina. <laughs> Alrighty, folks. Thanks you. Thank you very much, Bishop Julian, for yet another enlightenment on, on one of those curiosities of Catholic culture. Been a beautiful prayer and a much loved hymn. See you next time on Q and A. You've been listening to Q and A with Bishop Julian Claudius. For more episodes, visit radio.org.